Hello, and thank you for listening to the MicroBinFi podcast. Here, we will be discussing topics in microbial bioinformatics. We hope that we can give you some insights, tips, and tricks along the way. There is so much information we all know from working in the field, but nobody writes it down. There is no manual, and it's assumed you'll pick it up. We hope to fill in a few of these gaps. My co-hosts are Dr. Nabil Ali Khan and Dr. Andrew Page. I am Dr. Lee Katz. Both Andrew and Nabil work in the Quadrum Institute in Norwich, UK, where they work on microbes in food and the impact on human health. I work at Centers for Disease Control and Prevention and am an adjunct member at the University of Georgia in the US. Welcome to the MicroBinFi podcast. Today, I've got Nabil and Lee joining me, and they're going to tell me about mobile genetic elements and, well, what they are and uh, why I should care. So I come from a computer science background, so a lot of the terminology and uh, biology is, I suppose, not my cup of tea. I, I haven't learned it, but these two guys luckily know all the, the buzzwords and all the lingo and are going to explain to me exactly uh, what I should know and hopefully I'll become a better mathematician at the end of it. What is a mobile genetic element and what kind of uh, different ones are there? Well, I should first start off and say that I've been working on COVID. SARS-CoV-2 doesn't have any mobile genetic elements and I'm also pretty rusty on all of this stuff, but I'll give it a, a good a good go. So mobile genetic elements are genomic elements or segments that can mobilize themselves and move uh, between different genomes, between different chromosomes. There's a plethora, there's a multitude of different types you can get. You can get, this includes things like bacteriophages, so prophages that, so bacteriophages that integrate as prophages into the, into a host chromosome and then excise themselves and transduce elsewhere. You have transposons, you have plasmids, you have just genomic islands as well. You have integrative conjugative elements and integrons. So these are things that look like plasmids, but then dive into the, the chromosome. It just keeps going on and on. And within these different classifications, they can be remixed. So you can have something that's sort of phage looking, but isn't. You can have something that's plasmid looking, but isn't. And it's incredibly difficult. As long as there's some sort of mechanism for it to transfer, then it's a mobile genetic element. There are even mobile genetic elements that don't seem to have obvious signatures of how it actually mobilizes or whether it's able to do it, whether it's sort of autonomous in its ability to mobilize. So often you can have prophages that don't have all of the bacteriophage excision machinery properly and they borrow it from somewhere else and then they use that to excise along with 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 something else so it's a wild wonderful world out there and we we kind we kind of pretend a lot of us pretend that it's not actually there and try not to think of it too much and pretend everything is just nice and tidy sequence types (laughs) so uh, it's just like the accessory genome that people talk about in pangenomics yeah, I mean, it doesn't just because something's in the accessory genome, it doesn't strictly mean that it is mobilized, but both mobilized. things do kind of overlap with each other. Well, when you say mobilized, I mean, how do I tell the difference between maybe some phage annotated genes in the chromosome that I've sequenced and just a random contig I have uh, with uh, random annotated phage genes? The phages are quite particular because you should hopefully see, you should see something for the for the capsule, you should see some tail proteins 
things like that so for the sheet as well so they have a specific structure and you expect a certain panel of genes including certain proteins there but not necessarily because you can find you from from the very beginning of bacterial genomics that definitely instances of phage like prophage like elements which don't necessarily have the full set of genes that you'd be expecting so you're not quite sure if that's something that's that's self-contained and complete there are like certain tricks to identify the likelihood that something is a mobile genetic element quite often i will run like plasmid finder or something like that to look for the uh, ink type or whatever in my isolate now how accurate is that and you know, what does it actually really tell me? So it's obviously looking for a certain replicon and it's trying to type based on the replicon. I don't know if it's Plasmid Finder does it, whether it looks for conjugation, genes involve a conjugation as well and gives you a type from that. I don't think it does. Some other tools do, but there are like certain features you can use to, to identify a plasmid. Usually it's the ink type. That's That's sort of the most sort of standard way of going after it. But then, you know, I've seen before where there are ink types buried within the chromosome itself, uh, as well as within standalone plasmids. So how do you know which is which? <laughs> you don't. If you're dealing with short reads, you have no idea whether this is something that's accidentally been misassembled in a way that it's been merged into the chromosome by accident, or it could be an ICE, could be a genuine biological event where, the, where something like a plasmid has integrated into the chromosome difficult to say you know usually people are these days using short reads to do you know large scale isolate sequencing so what are the things we should kind of be wary of yeah if you are sequencing with short reads then you you might have like just some region of the genome some is element that repeats so many different times you won't be able to place it and well we've had some extreme examples of that we had this strain this vibrio, vibrio strain and it had three phages back to back to back in it, and we had to type it and everything. And PacBio was just becoming available to us, and we we're able to finally span it after like a year into study of this. And it was so hard. So, I mean, the real dangers with short read sequencing is you won't be able to span that repeat, and you won't be able to place where it is. But like, you might come across something with three different, three of the same phages. This in this case, it was a tandem phage, and even even longer reads wouldn't be able to handle it, which is where really long read sequencing comes in. Yeah, some E. coli or, can have up to 10 or 20 prophage or prophage looking repetitive elements in the genome. And each of those will probably be a breakpoint in your genome assembly. I've had a lot of trouble uh, with short reads and assembling pertussis. Are MGs responsible for this uh, hellhole of uh, an assembly problem? So with pertussis, they have a certain IS element. I forgot which number, but with IS elements, you'll you'll number them like IS element number 1111 or something. And uh, in some cases, I think with pertussis also, people use it to actually use it as a sequence typing method. And you can find it hundreds or maybe thousands of times in the genome. It's, it's incredible and it will really break up your genome. Shigella is another example of a organism that has tons of IS elements and usually your N50s are pretty rough, pretty lousy. Don't, don't you mean E. coli? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I guess that extends to all intero-invasive E. coli as well. Grant, I have heard that CRISPRs are the mechanism that 
bacteria use against phage like how on earth does that work and informatically what can we do with it i mean sort of off the cuff explanation of crispus because there's a there's a lot going on in terms of explaining how crispus work but it works like uh it's like a bacterial acquired immune system right so they have a set of associated genes and they have a panel of sequences that they use as targets to identify foreign DNA and when they identify it they then go off and, and destroy it. In some organisms you'll find that there are phage or foreign plasmid or foreign phage or foreign other things that are in the space of sequences that it'll go after. CRISPRs are pretty easy to find at this point because the genes that actually the associated genes are usually quite well conserved in the species so they're easy to to find and the, the segment itself the space of sequences and the repeats between those uh, spaces sequences is usually very short. So the whole thing comes out quite nicely in a de novo genome assembly for most organisms. And uh, it's a very unique structure. So there are tools like CRISPR Finder, Pile CR, Pile RCR, I think, from, from Rob Edgar. And uh, there are tons of them. Crispy, CRISPRDB, which you can use to, uh, Minced is another one which you can use to find CRISPR sequences. So do CRISPRs and, and the transmission of CRISPRs follow the same evolutionary path as the chromosome? Like, say, if I take 1ST V. coli, will I find mostly that the CRISPRs in there are identical, you know, in all of those, or do they differ quite substantially? Depends on the organism. It's a bit hit and miss. I would say you can't really use it as a rule of thumb. For Salmonella, it works a lot better, particularly in some cerevars like Typhimurium. CRISPRs can be, do follow, I guess the, the spacer sequences were fixed quite a long time ago and it sort of has followed along with the cerevars. In other organisms like uh, Mycobacterium tuberculosis, like you have spoligotyping and that is effectively looking at the CRISPR, the CRISPR panel. That's what that's derived from and that's a standard uh, typing method. So it varies really whether you can, uh, whether, how CRISPRs relate. You kind of think it shouldn't because it's defined on mobile DNA that the organism run into, but sometimes it can be associated with the species tree without with the original evolution of the organism. I, I think at one point or another, like we try to use it for genomic surveillance also, but it, it just is not as reliable as using SNPs or MLST, unfortunately. Yeah, usually I think I think historically people were interested in CRISPR typing before genomics. It, it was a useful thing to try prior to genomics, and you'll find a lot of literature where people, in especially in the public health sphere, do it. And then you know once you have genomics, all of that quickly drops off because you realize it's much easier just to shake a genome out. Okay, so um, assuming that I start with the FASTQ file, right, of an isolate. What do I do next if I want to actually really dig into the mobile genetic elements? You want to assemble the genome somehow. If you've got short, you've got short reads, right? Short or long. I mean, let's start with short. Short or long. All right, let's start with short. So you, you want to, either way, you want to assemble the genome. Because one of the key ways that you're going to identify your mobile genetic elements is the synteny of the genes. Just finding a singular transposon in, just in the vacuum of gene space doesn't tell you anything. So assembly is a good way to go. Right, Lee, what would you do next? I'd probably I'd probably do a rough and dirty annotation with Proca, just to have something I can look at in in a genome browser like Artemis. I feel like what? you stole on my brain over there. <laughs> that's, that's exactly <laughs> what I was gonna say. 
I'm 100% agreeing with you. And then you want to get to the stage where you can just look at it and decide what to do next. So you have your annotations and how would you do a better annotation after that? Because PROC is just a generalized annotation. You might want to do like something a little bit more plasma specific or whatever you think you might have. So if PROC is showing a bunch of IS elements, do some kind of IS element annotator. If you have a bunch of plasmid looking genes, a plasmid annotator. So what one thing I would add, and I think Andrew was alluding to this earlier, is uh, a good trick is once you have your assembly, you map your reads back onto your assembly and then look at the coverage because one obvious sign that you've got an MG is a collapse repeat. So it's a mm. duplicated thing, that repetitive thing over and over again. If you plot the coverage, you'll have a massive spike over a certain region of the genome, even if you don't know what those genes do. That's a good indication that something over and over again, it's a MG. Just as you said that, I've remembered that when you look at like a GC plot, often if there's an MGE, it will have a different GC to the background chromosome. And that can be an easy way to spot it. Yeah, a lot of prophages are, pages are AT rich, generally speaking. So that's a good trick to find it. So you mentioned Artemis there, but it is actually quite important to go and eyeball your data for basically any bioinformatics you do because I trust no algorithms at all. You know, they're they're good for getting you 90% of the way there, 95% of the way, but actually you have to dig in and see exactly what's going on and you use your brain. And unfortunately, that kind of stuff can't be automated, no matter what people claim about artificial intelligence. As I was saying at the beginning, mobile genetic elements are definitely a wild west still, and you can't trust a singular tool to, to get the answer right. Okay, so now you've gone and you got your assembly, you got some annotation. How do you, you know, sort the wheat from the chaff? So if you've given me a genome and say, Nabil, where are the prophages, if there are any prophages? I would bung it into FAST, which is a web service you could use, or fast, faster now. And um, that'll just quickly tell you, it has a sort of set of criteria that it's using to measure different regions of the genome. Does it have, you know, the structural proteins we were talking about that would suggest a phage? Does it have these AT-rich sort of things? It has it has a panel of, of metrics it does, and it says, well, these are the most likely prophage regions in your genome. Most phage typing methods have this, and they don't have like a sort of, they have a set of heuristics and not like a, a, a complete solution. So you, again, you go back to Artemis and double check whether those make sane. So there's things like faster, phage find, uh, five spy. There's a ton that you can play around with and get slightly different results each time. And so then you have to figure out which one is right. But that's that's where I'd start for phages. 100% agree with you. Once again, <laughs> same page. So I, I know when I've manually looked through genomes at the annotation, you'll see like a phage tail annotated and then a helix and then, you know, some genes in between. And often, you know, I go and shove those that sequence into NR in NCBI and there's nothing like it's like this has never been seen. No one has ever deposited this ever. Like, what the hell do I do next? Panic. Yeah, <laughs> I don't think there's anything you can do. You got to go and talk to your friends in the wet lab and actually do some real microbiology and figure out the gene function of that thing. Sounds hard. Sounds hard. No, that's you have to do actual work at that point. There's really not too much you can do once you've bunged it into NR. You you can try more sort of more sensitive alignment approaches, so like cyblast kind of things, which is looking at not just the the base position, not just the base alignment, but also the position and things like that. You can do methods like that to kind of look for very divergent similar similar genes, or again looking at things like 
I mean, ov obviously, if you're doing it NR, you are using it in amino acid space, right? And sure. know, not just nucleotide, NTNR. And you, you might have to start thinking about looking at structural predictions and, and comparing that. It gets yeah. pretty messy when you don't have any idea. I was thinking when you were talking about all that, like if I were looking for like the moonshot and I was stressing out about it and I had zero annotation so far, I'd probably go to like Interproscan or something like to to at least give me an idea what the domains are on there. Yeah, there there are some prophage databases or or like sort of MG like plasma databases that are a bit better curated that you can possibly throw them against to get an idea. Maybe PFAMs might help you. In that case, if you're really struggling, maybe but, that might be one way. But whenever okay. I've suggested that and tried it, it doesn't help. Basically, when I run into that thing and there's no result on NR, like nothing, it's like, I don't know. There's nothing I can do. I've tried all of those different things and nothing works. It's like, yep, well, this is just an unknown, a duff. Because Lee has had a power cut. Obviously, they're freezing down there in Atlanta, Georgia. But we are going to call it a day there and we will catch up again on mobile genetic elements. So thank you once again to Nabil and Lee for this really insightful discussion. Thank you so much for listening to us at home. If you like this podcast, please subscribe and rate us on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, or the platform of your choice. Follow us on Twitter at microbinfi. And if you don't like this podcast, please don't do anything. This podcast was recorded by the Microbial Bioinformatics Group. The opinions expressed here are our own and do not necessarily reflect the views of CDC or the Quadrum Institute.